You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Thomas Hatch, professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, and director of the National Center for Restructuring Education, Schools, and Teaching. Thomas's research includes studies of school improvement efforts at the school, district, and national levels. His latest book, The Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict, focuses on efforts to create more powerful learning experiences both inside and outside of schools in developed and developing contexts. Let's listen in as he talks with Tom about the future of powerful learning, micro-innovations, and change. Dr. Thomas Hatch, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Um, uh, Dr. Hatch, I thought we could start with a little uh, backstory on NCREST. Um, it's really one of America's uh, long-standing uh, research institutions that really focused on um, school quality and system quality. Uh, we appreciate the work that you've done there at the National Center for Restructuring Education, Schools and Teaching. Um, What's the origin story and the mission of the center? Uh, well, I, I really appreciate your your pointing to the the importance and value of Encrest, uh, Tom, because it's it's been around for now almost thirty years. It was started in nineteen ninety one by Linda Darling Hammond, who is now the is you know right? in California, yes, uh, uh, running a lot uh, many aspects of state education in California, as well as her colleague Ann Lieberman, uh, both of whom were at Teachers College together at the time, and then both of whom moved out to California afterwards. Uh, and Anne is very well known in her own right for a tremendous work on professional development uh, and really mentoring uh, a whole generation of scholars and educators, including uh, many women in leadership roles in education today. But uh, the, the origin of, of NCREST is really reflected in the title, the National Center for Restructuring Education, Schools, and Teaching, which basically tries to pile everything together uh, because in 19, the 1990s, when NCREST got started, that was kind of the heyday of the small schools movement and the movement towards comprehensive reform. It was, it was really a transition to recognizing that, look, we can't just focus on curriculum. We can't just focus on community engagement. We can't just focus on parents. We can't just focus on assessment. We really have to change everything about schools. Uh, and NCREST was really created to uh, support and document the work on the development of small schools originally in New York City, but since then has really expanded, as you indicated, to working with both schools and systems around the country and now to some extent around the world. Uh, Dr. Hatch, I think I, I first ran into your work uh, around 2000 when we were starting the Gates Foundation. Um, I, I particularly remember your early work on the subject of coherence. Yes. Um, I, I, and I, re, I recall reading something that you had written and then visiting High Tech High and really for the first time seeing what coherence meant in, in the beautiful and simple sense that everything works together for teachers and kids. Uh, so I, I wanted to note that I appreciate your early work on that subject, um, maybe if you recall the, the sort of backstory on what what led you to that observation of uh, coherence, um, what it is and why it's important. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that really goes back to the very beginnings of my work. And so I, I came to NCREST. I took over as the co-director in 2003. I'm the director now. Uh, but 
my work in education started in the 1980s when I was a graduate student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And there I worked with Howard Gardner, who was just getting very well known for the theory of multiple intelligences at the time. And uh, so the trying to make the long story short, uh, the, the theory was so popular that we had a chance at Project Zero to begin working with educators and education leaders all around the country and all around the world who wanted to create more personalized, uh, student-centered schools that embraced, you know, all aspects of abilities. And uh, it, it was a fabulous uh, opportunity, but it really was a crash course in kind of the failures of large-scale educational reform. And, and part of the challenge that I found was, was not a problem in our schools per se, but in a, a problem in our approach to reform, and I would argue in many of the organizations that were dedicated to helping schools. So the, the reality was I would go to you know uh, Norfolk, Virginia to work with a school that um, Project Zero or Atlas Communities Project, which was one of the big designs that was supported by the New American Schools Development Corporation in the early 1990s. Um, and I would go and work with a group of teachers and I would literally run into colleagues from down the hall at Harvard who were working on expeditionary learning or I'd run into someone from, you know, Success for All or another uh, program. And each one of us thought that we were providing the overall umbrella, the comprehensive approach that the school was going to put in place. And what, in fact, they were doing is they were taking and grabbing, you know, advantage of whatever resources they could um, for a wide variety of, of reasons. But my argument was that ultimately these multiple initiatives ended up being conflicting uh, and really undermining the capacity that schools had to uh, make the really significant reforms that needed to be made rather than building that capacity. And so that led to that article, which you probably saw, which was all about, you know, the uh, how multiple improvement efforts collide. Uh, and in fact, it was it was one of those articles that before it actually got into print, I had people calling me, telling me they'd read it because, you know, I, I mean, there were, you know, superintendents, Ray Cortinas, who was, you know, superintendent in, uh, later in New York originally, L.A. later, called me out of the blue and said, you know, this is exactly what we're struggling with. So it was a fa fascinating learning experience. I, I think I came to appreciate coherence so much that it's it's why um, at the Gates Foundation, I really stress new school development, because with high schools, it's much easier to create coherence from scratch than to try to take a comprehensive high school that has had this sedimentary effect of all these changes added over time and try to create coherence in a in a large, complex system. So there, there are some advantages to starting from scratch when you can. That. That's absolutely right. And, you know, Larry Rosenstock at High Tech High was able to bring together uh, a wide variety and draw on lots of expertise, but put it together in a coherent way, uh, you know, from the beginning. And I think so often that just doesn't happen. So congratulations on your uh, on your new Corwin book. It's called Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict. We um, we love the book. We love the title. Um, we love to focus on creating more powerful learning experiences, both inside and outside school, uh, in developed and developing contexts. So that, that's the kind of the blurb of the book. Um, there's a lot that we appreciate about it. I'd love to have you just um, talk about, say a few words about each of the sections in the book. Um, the, the first one is the case for change. The, 
part one. Um, how, how would you how would you sort of headline the case for change? And then maybe any any suggestions for how school leaders can create conversations that result in uh, agreements around a case for change. So, so what are they and how do you create agreements around them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And um, I, I, you know, I think that's where the work has has to begin with a common understanding sort of of why we're doing this work and, and what we're headed for. Um, and in, in that section of the book, one of the things I try to do is in a way uh, capture a little bit of an experience that I share with my students. I teach a course on school change. It was actually inherited. Uh, Linda Darling Hammond invented this course originally. Well, she didn't invent it. She actually borrowed it from Ted Sizer from the Coalition of Essential Schools. And originally it was a seminar. It was it was called Travels with Ted. And he had the funding at the time to take his seminar students up and down the East Coast visiting small schools in the 1980s. So I, I have to say we do not have those kinds of resources. And many of my students are already working in schools as school leaders or teachers. Um, but the focus is on helping them work in groups uh, to develop their own designs for learning. At one time, it was about developing schools uh, but we got so many proposals for small schools that looked the same that we finally tried to change the uh, the design experiment and say, well, it's not just about reinventing schools. It's really about imagining all kinds of learning experiences. But But in that course, I try to motivate the work in the very first day by asking students uh, to think about what education was like when they were a student, you know, which wasn't for many of them wasn't that long ago, but maybe when their parents were uh, were in schools and and what it looks like today and to talk about what's changed and what hasn't. And part of the point is to get beyond this basic debate that I think still goes on about whether schools today are better or worse than they were before, because the answer is the answer is yes. They're better in some ways and they're worse in some ways. They're better for some students and they're worse for some students. Even for, you know, most of us, there, you know, we might experience ways in which the system is better and ways in which the system is worse. So what I try to do in, in at least one of those chapters in that section is to, is to help people recognize both where improvements are being made and you know, if you look around the world, we have increased access to education substantially. And we have to, you know, recognize that and build on that. But then at the same time, we have to recognize that we have not nearly made the progress that we need to in terms of the quality of schooling and actually enabling students all around the world to be able to read, to write, to communicate, to collaborate, to work together. And it's not just a problem in the developing world. So I also try to point out that even in the U.S., you know, there are students who have been left behind forever, uh, often black students, you know, indigenous students, um, st other students of color, students in poverty, students in rural areas. These are students for whom the system we have has never worked. And I really try and, you know, in that way, lay out that we both have to improve the schools that we have to build on what we've done before. But at the same time, that will never reach the many students who've never been benefited from the education that we have today. I appreciate how in that section uh, you talk about unpredictability uh, and complexity. And while these have always been the case, uh, 2020 is sort of a case study in, um, in novelty and complexity. Uh, that's the one thing we know for sure that young people are gonna face more of that. And I think as you point out in that section, 
really coming to terms with what that means for school, where we've spoons-fed kids with small problems with right answers, and if they're headed for a world of of, of unpredictability, uh, as you said, it it has big implications for the kinds of problems that we uh, that we introduce to to young people. So, appreciated how you dealt with that in the in the first section. Second section is uh, is on uh, barriers to change. Uh, maybe you could list a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know that really that really recounts my experiences in the 1990s, is that I talked about that kind of crash course in large scale school reform, um, and I, I guess you know when I during those experiences, it was a tremendously depressing time. Honestly, it really made me feel in some ways that we couldn't make progress. But I think. You know, uh, building on work uh, of Larry uh, Larry Cuban, David Tyak, and later David Cohen and Jal Mehta, uh, you know, they emphasize, yes, there are lots of institutional barriers that are making it difficult to change schools on a large scale. But again, at the same time, we have to recognize that some changes um, are being made and have been made. Uh, but for me, as I look back on that experience, it, it really and I try to distill this in a whole set of you know, principles related you know, to school improvement uh, and educational transformation. But the but the lesson in that section and, and the lesson for me from the 1990s is that we really have not worked hard enough to try to fit and adapt our solutions to the problems that people have. And so just as you were alluding to, we keep trying to, uh, you know, to uh, determine what's going to be needed in the 21st century or the 22nd century, what our students are going to need in, you know, 20 years from now, uh, when, you know, as, as you were indicating, it's, it's, it's hard to anticipate. Uh, and we haven't focused enough on what are the real problems and needs that people have on the ground in different schools and in different communities. And I believe the lesson from that work is that if we were, if we can find a match between the needs that people have, uh, the cap the resources and uh, capabilities that they have, um, and you know really the tenor of the times, the values, the beliefs that people have, uh, and we can match those to the goals of our reform efforts, to the kinds of resources and expertise that we're uh, providing, uh, and you know understand how values and beliefs may need to change. Uh, that then we can be much more successful. But we can't go around ignoring the institutional pressures that reinforce standardized testing, that reinforce age-graded schools and, you know, individual, you know, um, more direct instruction or or rote learning. Uh, and we can't, you know, ignore the fact that many of us have grown up and our image of what learning looks like is sitting in a classroom listening to a teacher. For better or for worse, um, that's what it's come to mean for us. So it's, I, my argument is really, okay, let's recognize that, let's deal with those barriers, let's not pretend that we can dream up some fabulous future and just you know transcend where we are today. In part three, you talk about how schools improve and in particular, um, you focus on um, high leverage problems. Uh, what are those? 
So, so to me, this is really um, critical. And I, I've done a lot of work with uh, superintendents. And, and the challenge for superintendents and other education leaders is they're responsible for the entire system. So that kind of pushes them to constantly be making decisions and developing plans that work for the whole system. Uh, but it's also absolutely critical that, that they work uh, closely with their you know, colleagues, their educators, their community members to focus in on specific problems where real progress can be made in relatively short periods of time. If you want to bring people together and inspire them, uh, you know, you can't tell them 10 years from now, we're going to raise test scores. You know, you have to identify problems that matter to people again. So that's the first criteria of a high leverage problem. If you tell it to somebody, will everybody say, oh, yeah, that's a problem I have. I've, I've experienced that. Uh, the second is, you know, is there something you can do about it? Do you have the capability or capacity to put in place some you know, some changes, particularly at the classroom level, um, where you could then see uh, some signs of visible progress, which is really the third issue, um, or the second issue, see that visible progress that can help people and motivate them to move uh, forward and to continue. And the third is that it provides a foundation for more systemic work and, you know, kind of the continuation of your effort. Hey listeners, we'll get right back to Tom, but first wanted to tell you about a new Getting Smart report about what's next in learning. Over the last few months, the Getting Smart team has been working on identifying 20 invention opportunities in learning and development, and have pulled all of that together into a report that was made possible by the Walton Family Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. These opportunities have the possibility to completely shift what we talk about when we talk about schooling. Check out our recommendations, insights, and more at the link in the show notes or at gettingsmart.com slash invention opportunity. All right, let's get back to the show. I love that concept. I was just talking to a system head a few minutes ago about, about this of tackling high leverage problems early to build political capital for, exactly. for long-term work. Yeah. The next section um, is on how education can change. And you introduced this beautiful concept of uh, micro-innovations around the system. What, what's a micro-innovation and, and what can they do uh, f- to, to move a system agenda along? Well, in, in, in my view, micro-innovations are the developments that we need to address those high-leverage problems. Um, I mean, I, I do stress in the book that we do have the capacity to solve some problems already. We don't need a lot of innovation, for example, to making sure that more people get access to the Internet. Uh, these are things that we should do right away. Uh, and we don't need, you know, n- new solutions. But uh, there are some, you know, very challenging problems uh, that we've experienced for a long time where we do need some new developments. Uh, But rather than focusing kind of on a broad general approach, we need to get very specific. And so that's the micro uh, level. And for me, uh, something I really kind of experienced in some ways what I consider to be a good example of this first in Singapore when I went to an organization called EduLab, which was set up by the Singaporean government um, to work with teachers and bring teachers together with researchers and ed tech companies uh, to develop new tools and resources to improve teaching and learning. And one of the innovations that I learned about uh, that I would consider a micro innovation was a game that a chemistry teacher had developed 
that worked primarily for uh, his 10th grade students in introductory chemistry during the first weeks of the course. It was a game that introduced the nomenclature and the vocabulary they were going to need for the rest of the year. Uh, Now, the game didn't work in other subjects. Um, It didn't work even the rest of the year. But it was a really powerful way uh, to engage students in a critical topic and to enable them to do much better in learning about it than they had been previously. And Singapore, actually, they um, took this teacher's game, worked with him and turned it into an app that's now available on you know, App Store and Google Play you know, around the world. Uh, and my argument is that we need micro innovations like that in every subject, uh, you know, every you know every age group of students uh every type of students you know we need these for the students who are struggling to read as well as those who are excelling but the you know the tools and resources aren't going to be the same in each case we need to really um develop those that will match the needs of the situation and the particular students i i love that idea our friends at 4.0 schools in new orleans have for 10 years been um teaching this idea of micro-innovations um, w- where they help people pilot a, an idea in a very small scale, and that might be for two hours after school, and then it turns into an after-school program, then it turns into a, a summer school program, and then it turns into a micro-school. But um, the, the idea of um, iterative development uh, in a system that uh, attacks, as you said, these the, the low-hanging fruit, these high-leverage problems um, can really make a, a big difference in terms of creating momentum for uh, for systems change. Absolutely. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, chapter five is on systems change, and it's really, it's a beautiful framework of uh, coherence, which we've talked a little bit about, but capacity building and uh, collective responsibility. I wonder if you could talk about capacity building and collective responsibility as as critical elements of systems change. Yeah, and the, and the capacity building also goes back to my work in the 1990s, um, where really what I was seeing was that we weren't building the capacity that was required. And part of my argument is that we had a very impoverished view of what it really takes to build capacity. So, in fact, a lot of the policies of the 19, you know, 1990s, the 2000s, you know, NCLB is a perfect example. Uh, you know, Richard Elmore has said that we overinvested in accountability and underinvested in capacity building. And in NCLB's case, we, you know, invested in creating this testing infrastructure and trying to incentivize people uh, to, you know, improve teaching and learning and to improve outcomes. But we really didn't invest as much as we needed to in terms of professional development, uh, quality, you know, higher quality materials and resources or anything, you know, of, of that kind. And so, you know, in, in order to deal with the depression of, uh, you know, large, the failures of large scale s- school reform in the U.S., once it was time to take a sabbatical in, you know, the 2008, 2009, uh, I decided I wanted to go study what was happening in some higher performing education systems. 
And uh, through a, a various uh, strange sequence of events, I ended up in Norway, which uh, funnily enough actually performs about the same as the U.S. on international tests, uh, not nearly as well as its neighbor and, you know, neighboring country, Finland, which many of us think are, you know, Finland and Norway are basically the same country. So how could they have such different educational outcomes? But it really gave me a chance to take a look at what was happening in, quote unquote, higher performing countries and uh, so-called lower performing countries. And I want to hasten to add that I see strengths and uh, weaknesses of both higher performing and lower performing education systems. Uh, and I learned a tremendous amount from my experience in Norway. But looking at systems like Finland and Singapore, it really helped me to see that they are not just focused. I and mean, the story is it's all about the teachers, right? They just get the smartest people to become teachers and they basically, you know, let let them go. And yes, they, they do have... Um, teachers that are very well qualified. They also have really strong and powerful teacher preparation, as you know. But, you know, that's only a small part of it. Finland and Singapore are also well known for having some of the most uh, powerful curricula in the world. They're, they're known for having very uh, powerful and effective assessments. So uh, I talk about, you know, they have beautiful facilities. So they have what I call technical capital, the, you know, the resources and materials that are a critical part of capacity to improve instruction. Uh, they also have a focus on preparation for teachers, but education leaders, policymakers, um, all of these, you know, goes into developing the expertise that is also crucial for improving teaching and learning. And then finally, and I think this is often overlooked, uh, both Finland and Singapore pay attention uh, to the relationships uh, amongst people in schools, amongst students and teachers, uh, amongst uh, school and their uh, surrounding communities, but they also work very hard to make sure there are close connections between different elements of the education system, researchers, teacher preparation and schools, uh, as well as uh, policymakers and their connections between um, educational institutions, health institutions, economic institutions in the country. And so they're working on technical capital, human capital, and social capital all at the same time. And in this country, um, you know, unfortunately, we have really not made the same investments that would allow us um, to develop that kind of high-powered education system. Uh, I really appreciated this section um, that, that highlights capacity building, coherence, and collective responsibility. Um, Thomas, it reminded me of Tom Pezant in uh, in Boston, the work he did, Terry Greer uh, did in in Houston, the work that Tom uh, Boosberg led in Denver, that Pam Moran uh, led in Albemarle County. All of those are examples of extending these three concepts over a decade, right? Because it really does take a decade-long push on all three of these primary levers to really promote systems change. Does that sound right? Yeah, but I mean, if we look at Finland and Singapore, I mean, those are, you know, those are 50 year endeavors, right? Um, 10 years, you know, 10 years is a good start. Uh, but yeah. it just shows that our timeline is completely out of whack. It, uh, it does. And we're already seeing um, unraveling in many of the cities that I just uh, mentioned, uh, because you have a leadership change, and then uh, that agenda comes comes apart. So right. I, I appreciate that point. 
But that's why collective responsibility is so crucial, because these efforts have to outlast. They have to be bigger than any one individual. They have to be bigger than any generation. And that's what we've seen in things like, you know, uh, movements for racial and social justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the, you know, the climate emergency. These are going to take, you know, the work of generations and all of us working together to change these conditions that will actually allow us to be successful. And so the point I try to make around collective responsibility is that in some ways, you know, this is this is part of the DNA of societies and cultures like Finland and Singapore. But it's, you know, it's not like we can just say, oh, you know, they, you know, they're, they value that more than we do. Therefore, you know, we can't do it. They also build mechanisms into their systems that bring people together to talk actively about curriculum and student work and how the system is working across sectors. And that builds that kind of collective responsibility that we need in the U.S. I appreciate that. Hey, you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. We're uh, talking to Dr. Thomas Hatch. Today he's the author of The Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict. Uh, Thomas, you, you've been incredibly productive for the last 20 years. I, I wonder if you could just reflect on your own professional learning um, how you keep learning about um, complex systems and maybe a little bit of how that changed in, in 2020. Um, well, that's a great question. I mean, for me, it's it's a part of what I live. Uh, I mean, part of the reason I'm in academia and I can, you know, I, I, I can go on sabbaticals, I can do the work I do is because learning is central to, to everything uh, you know, that, I, that I'm about. I just happen to have focused on learning about education systems. Um, but I'm fortunate in that sense that, you know, that means that I'm learning with my family, with my children. A lot of what I learned in Norway and about some other systems, uh, my kids spent not only time going to school in Norway, they about spent a couple of weeks in a Finnish school. Uh, so I'm constantly learning from them and from their experiences. And um, you know the, the the pandemic has been so devastating and and the school closures so difficult, um, but it also means that my you know junior in high school is also sitting next door, um, and I, honestly I'll, I'll t you know um, it's it's been very hard to both be writing about the future of education and where I think it can go, and at the same time you know, working with her on what is a very, you know, challenging year. She's got to get into college, you know, she's onto the SATs and, you know, um, dealing with that whole college process that is, uh, that is so challenging uh, for so many. Um, and it's a real, um, it, it's, it's, it, I just feel like I'm constantly in this um, work where, you know, we're trying to be hopeful, trying to build, uh, steps and avenues and pathways into the future at the same time that part of my message is in order to get to a better future, we have to recognize how difficult uh, the challenges are today, particularly, um, you know, not just for my kids, but, you know, kids who are in much more difficult circumstances, you know, black kids, um, Latin kids who have, you know, been faced systematic, you know, racism and discrimination for so long. Uh, Thomas, you seem to be somebody that um, learns by writing. Uh, is, is that fair that uh, 
you've been really productive as a as an author. Um, is is writing part of the learning process for you? Uh, I writing is definitely part of the learning process for me, and actually for for me, uh, writing blogs has now become. Uh, uh, a part of it and starting in Norway, but really later when we were visiting Finland and others uh, places, I started to write shorter pieces kind of reflecting on what I was seeing, which actually slowed me down from writing some of the more academic <laughs> work I was supposed to be doing and, and the books, uh, which is why it's taken me 10 years to come out with this book after my my earlier book. Um, but but this book has really grown out of um, those experiences uh, and and the opportunity to share those blog posts um, with and get some feedback and and get some reactions. But also, you know, both in writing, but also in conversations like this with you, uh, with other, um, you know, other authors, education leaders. I work um, for 10 years now. I've been working with a group of superintendents in New Jersey called the New Jersey Network of Superintendents, appropriately enough. Um, and, and those conversations ha have been just instrumental in, in helping to keep me grounded and focused on what matters. Uh, what's next for you, Thomas? Do you uh, have another book in mind or a, a project you're working on you can share with us? Um, I, I, you know, the work that I'm trying to do is is really about finding that closer connection between um, practice and research. And I know we often say the connection between research and practice, but I think it has to go the other way around. And that's the whole idea of high leverage problems. Uh, we need to be starting our research and data analysis with the problems that matter, uh, with problems that people are experiencing in different communities. So I would love to see, uh, see institutions like my own, like Teachers College and Columbia University, you know, partnering with uh, schools and um, other educational organizations like New Visions for Public Schools and um, so many others, some of the others I talk about in my book, Beam, uh, which is works with uh, developing large-scale art installations in schools. But, you know, I want to see us working together with schools and community members to identify, you know, what the high leverage problems are. Uh, get started. It's a it's a Michael Fullan ready fire, you know, aim uh, situation. Let's pull together whatever we know, what local expertise we have, what the research says. Let's give it a shot. Let's document it. Let's collect the data. Let's see what progress we're making. Um, and you know, let's let's build that capacity for making improvements around these specific uh, critical issues, you know, in the short term. But at the same time, what I'm struggling with is if we do that, all we're going to do is make the current system more efficient and a little bit better. And that's never going to be enough. So at the same time we're doing that, I'm also trying to figure out, well, how do we connect education to these larger, you know, global social movements that are really going to, you know, fundamentally, I hope, address the issues of equity and, you know, racism and, you know, uh, climate change that that we absolutely have to address if we're really going to transform education in the future. Uh, we appreciate that. Dr. Thomas Hatch, author of The Education We Need for a Future We Can't Predict. Thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. A big thanks to Thomas for joining us on this week's episode. For more on powerful learning experiences, be sure to check out episode 256 with Jenny Pirat on Powerful PBL. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes. 
Alrighty, that's it for today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And that way they're ready for you every Wednesday morning to press play. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.